Yeah, if you're just tuning in, we're starting Ezra. Uh, In Ezra, uh, we will find the release from being in Babylonian captivity and a return back to the promised land. Uh, So we will see how that happens. And we've moved from, historically, Babylonian captivity. Anybody from world history know who conquered the Babylonians? Or even biblical history know who conquered the Babylonians and took over as the dominant world power? The Persians. The Persians took over, and it's under these guys, the Persians, that uh, the nation of Israel gets their release to go back to the promised land. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell about this release. Historically, uh, the context is about three waves of people under three uh, different Persian kings who come back to the nation of Israel and start the rebuilding process. Uh, Ezra comes in the second wave, uh, and Nehemiah in the first wave wave. Now the other historical note before we actually get into Ezra's text is that Nehemiah, the the reforms that he brought about and establishing the nation of Israel back in the promised land uh, as God's chosen people, this ends the uh, historical books of the Old Testament. And in the sequence of time, when they get back and get established, they're established, they're in Israel, uh, Jerusalem is rebuilt, temple is established, and we enter into a 400-year kind of silence. No prophets, uh, no you know exiles, anything like that. There's kind of a 400-year silence. When that 400 years ends... On the scene comes John the Baptist followed by Jesus. Okay, so we're kind of setting this is the end of the time frame coming from when Nehemiah back to the nation of Israel, the period of 400 years just prior to Christ returning. Now, you may look at that and go, wait a minute, we're not even halfway through the Old Testament. What happens here? Well, this is historically, but coming after Nehemiah, we get the books the way our canon is set up of Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, then we get into the prophets. Well, the prophets, and and you know Psalms was written by who? King David. Well, was he after Nehemiah? No, no, he was way before. So the way our books are set up, those are listed afterward, but they were written by individuals before. All of the prophets that we're going to read, we'll kind of get into. And if you've got your Old Testament time survey, you'll remember that those prophets, many of them were prophesying in either the time just before the Babylonian invasion being carried off. Some of those prophets were were, uh, speaking to the nation of Israel while they were slaves, saying, endure this, you know, hang in there. God's got a plan. He's going to bring you out of this. And then a couple of the prophets were contemporaries with Ezra and Nehemiah. As the people were coming back and getting established again, they were teaching and they were sharing things with the people then. Okay? So, now let's get to these Bible books. The author of Ezra uh, is unknown uh, in a sense. There, there are a couple of candidates that pop up, both in Ezra and Nehemiah. Many uh, claim that the person who wrote First and Second Chronicles is also the author of Ezra. And their argument is it wasn't Ezra. They call him the chronicler. And so they say the chronicler wrote 
First and Second Chronicles, the book of Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah, all three together. Others say, well, Ezra was a priest. He was educated. He was trained in the law, uh, you know, was able to, to gather these notes. And so Ezra is the one who put together Chronicles and the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So it kind of gets real confusing. We really don't know. But whoever wrote Ezra most likely put all three of them together. Okay, so kind of a, a lump sum uh, in the canon as that goes. Date is around 440 to 430 BC. We can date these pretty well because we know uh, from numerous historical sources, not just scripture, but uh, even some many extra biblical sources, who the Persian kings were in the times that they ruled and they reigned. So we're able to begin dating these books uh, much more securely. There's a lot of archaeological support to support the the individuals that we find in the Bible. This is where archaeology really begins to affirm uh, and we see that they uh, give a huge level of credibility to biblical accounts because of the names we see in the Bible. People for years are like, no, no, that's not true. Bible's just whatever. Well, then archaeology goes in and they found portions of the wall from the original city of Jerusalem that probably Nehemiah built as part of the reestablishing and they find in these writings some of the very names that we see who were giving uh, Ezra and Nehemiah fits when there was opposition and they came back to try and reestablish Jerusalem. There were uh, non-Jewish governors and rulers landlords in that time who opposed them, we see those names written in uh, extra-biblical information and archaeological finds say Sanballat was the governor of Samaria over here in this time. It's like, oh, he's been in the Bible for all these years. See, it, it's speaking of the same thing. So it's a really cool thing. Everyone do some research on that. You can Google it and uh, probably read for hours on that. Again, the purpose of the book is basically describing coming back to the promised land and being reestablished as God's covenant people. We've been in exile because of our sin and our, our, our disobedience. We repented, <clears throat> excuse me, in that time, realized our waywardness, we're coming back, and it kind of shows the reforms, both the spiritual reforms, but also the political, uh, the civil reforms, all those things that take place. A couple of key verses. Flip to Ezra chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. Uh, and these are just a, a couple of key things from the um, marks of being reestablished back in the promised land. Ezra chapter 3. Zerubbabel was the guy who came back and led the first. That's a fun name. I tried to get Shelly to name our first male child that. She wasn't biting. So, you know, Z Zerubbabel, could just, it's fun to say, get all those bees rolling in there, came back as a priest, started leading the reform, uh, had some issues there, some challenges, uh, both internally and externally. Uh, after a season, uh, Ezra came. After Ezra was there for a while, the Nehemiah came. But as they're back, Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, marks a significant point. It says, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It's a really pivotal mark because they're saying that the place of worship, the place of worship which was central in their lives because they were devoting themselves to God's provision, God's watch care. God is the one that sent them into slavery. Now God had redeemed them and brought them back and they were saying, God, we're going to serve you. So the laying of the foundation of the temple becomes very important. So there's great celebration for them when this happens. Uh, flip over to chapter 7.
Oh, and that, that building was in Zerubbabel's part right there. Uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Then Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he had asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And so Ezra comes back and begins. Primarily, he was a scribe and a teacher of the law. His effort and focus was primarily on the spiritual components, reestablishing their worship uh, and their, their commitment to God. Themes in theology. A number of things we see from this. Uh, We see that God can use anyone to fulfill his plans and his purposes. These Persian kings are heathens. These are not God followers, not a God awareness. Uh, Who gives us some great insight into what was taking place in the culture of the Persians and, and and some of God's people standing firm to God instead of following the Persian stuff and beginning to see the revival and the change that took place in some of the Persian kings. Anybody know the book of the Bible that chronicles that? Daniel, that's exactly right. So you remember Daniel and you know praying to God, and then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego build build these Persian kings a temple. You know, bow down to me, or the the shrine, bow down to me. We're not going to do that. We're going to stand for our God. And through these mighty displays of power, these Persian kings began to say, "Wow, we we kind of want to follow this God. He he seems to have some great power, some great might. We see displayed in his people." And they began to release them to say, hey, "If you want to serve this God, the God of these people, go back to your homeland, reestablish it." Their goal. Hey, we want favor of this God. We've seen what he can do. We, we want to be in his corner, have him in our corner, so to speak. Uh, and so we see that God is able to use anybody uh, to be able uh, to uh, complete his purposes. Number three on there, God's power always prevails. Um, there is opposition. Uh, we'll look at some of that. Uh, some of the opposition that came uh, was from external enemies, people outside the city, people outside of the faith, uh, but also some of the challenges that came in the rebuilding both under Ezra's watch and under Nehemiah's came from within from within God's people they're bickering and some of the decisions they were making that was an opposition an obstacle but God's power prevailed in that and brought them back to um, himself God's word is seen as central uh, in all of this the temple was rebuilt first Uh, they continued on I put a quote in there about Ezra he expounded upon the word of God to the Israelites after he returned says the law was used Utilized by Ezra as a platform to discipline the Israelites and at the same time provide them with something tangible to cling to in times of trial and tribulation. So you got to remember, this was a very tenuous time as they were coming back. It's not like they came back to a city that, you know, everything was built, everything was solid. Uh, they didn't have walls. Why were walls important in ancient times? Keep the intruders out. That's exactly right. And when you uh, overpowered a city, one of the things that you did was you tore their walls down so that they weren't able to you know, hold back up and, and fend you off again. And so the people are coming back and they're trying to reestablish. But remember, they've been slaves now for 70 years. And so they're having to like learn skills, you know, a whole new set of skills and having to rebuild in the process. And all of these uh, individuals on the outside want to keep them oppressed. They want to keep them under their thumb. And they do whatever they can to strike fear, to come in and maraud and steal. Uh, they sometimes one of their strategies was they would send a letter back to the king of Persia. 
and, and say, these Jews are trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They're going to rebel against you. And the Persian king would say, okay, stop building. I don't want anybody that's going to rebel and kind of go out on their own. And so you, know, you have this dialogue back and forth. There's this constant turmoil uh, and, and tension that's taking place. And so Ezra, in the midst of this, from his background as a priest, is driving them to God's word. Trust in God. He has the power. He will help us overcome. We can do this with him. But he calls them to God's word as their focus to say, don't lose sight of who God is and being faithful to him. And so when they would sin and step out of line, he'd call them back in. Hey, don't do this. Some of the other prophets, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah in this time, they were there speaking the same message. Follow God. Be obedient to him. He will take care of you. Prayer in uh, Ezra chapter 9 is another uh, important part of what we see here. And then number 5 there, you see that there is uh, this constant sin and temptation never ceases for God's people. This curse from back in Genesis 3 is still uh, running rampant in people's lives. So that's Ezra. Brings back to you kind of in the middle part of the restoration here. Flip the page over. Or flip a couple pages over, depending on how your Bible is numbered. And you come to Nehemiah. And again, he's basically chapter 2. And all the authorship stuff basically remains the same. The chronicler, was that Ezra? Uh, was it, you know, some people say well, it's Nehemiah because there are first-hand accounts. Nehemiah says, I did this. I went and did this. I spoke these words. This is what I did among the people. And so they say, well, if it's first-person account, then it had to be Nehemiah. Is that always true? If it's first person, does it have to be that person? No, it's very likely that Ezra as a scribe may have had access to Nehemiah's journals as he kept these things. He was an official with the king, uh, and so he kept reports, detailed stuff. Uh, Ezra, the chronicler, whoever put it together, probably had access to that to put, it, put all these things in and say, here's what's taking place. But the fluidity of flowing in these three books uh, kind of seems to indicate had a single author with all of it. But if you want to argue that there were three different ones, then you're fine to be able to go and do that. Nehemiah's profession was what? Does anybody know what he was? He was a cup bearer to the king. You know what that did? Go for it. Tasted Tasted the food, tasted the wine for the purpose of making sure it was safe. So you wanted to have a very trustworthy cupbearer, right? You didn't want the guy who's faking taking a drink and said, oh, it's good, king, here you go, you know, this kind of stuff, or just, you know, nibbling and stuff and, you know, spitting it out on the side. So it was a very trusted position, the hand of the king. Uh, the note in this is that he wasn't a priest, you know, wasn't part of the Levites and the temple personnel. Uh, he basically had a secular job that he was working, you know, for the king, but he still loved the Lord. Uh, still sought him, and we'll, we'll note a couple of things there. And as God moved in his heart, God was able to take his uh, skill set, his abilities, and use that as another and very important final piece uh, in his book. But a couple key verses here. Chapter 1, verse 3. He's cupbearer to the king. And he gets a report from what's taken back in Jerusalem. He now knows they've had two waves of people go back to his homeland, where his heart is, where people are serving God. Family members, he's got a brother that's there. So, hey, how are things going back in Jerusalem, back in the homeland? He gets the report in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
And we've talked about this in a number of times, that God uh, burdens us with what, what I've called before, you've heard me reference, as a holy discontent. God, we, we hear news, we see something, and it just bothers us. You ever had that? You're just something really settles deep within you, and the thing that bothers you begins to get your attention to the point that you are then burdened, and you start to try and do something about it. And that's what happens with Nehemiah. This just grieves his heart to hear that after we're talking, I think it's about a 60-year window, they still haven't rebuilt Jerusalem. And remember this wall deal, how important that is. They're just at the mercy of the the terrible people around, being the cupbearer of the king and a part of the king's court, it's likely that he had heard these reports from these other governors to come back and say, here's what these Jews are doing. They're rebuilding. They're going to do it. And the king said, stop the work. You know, to do this. And hearing all this, and in his heart knowing that that's not what they were trying to do when they left. You know, we want to serve God. We want to do right uh, and all of that. But finally, this piece of news really begins to weigh heavy on him. And you know what he does first? He prays. He begins to pray and ask God, what would you have me do? How would you have me handle this? And finally, through his prayer and this holy unrest that's there, again, God using that in Nehemiah's life. God will very often stir you up to motivate you and move you to, to serve him in faithfulness and obedience. It's you, know, you look at a number of social justice type causes around the world and what moves people and gets them motivated and gets them started are uh, things that, that bother them, that, that there are injustices, there are things that are wrong. Uh, as we went this last year to Cambodia, you know, we, we had that, uh, the Living Water Project, we raised, I think, you know, fourteen fifteen thousand $15,000 to provide clean drinking water around the world. People saw the need that people around the world are dying simply because they don't have clean drinking water. And people said, you know, we've got to do something about this. And so they've gone and they've started ministries and initiatives to go in and teach and train and test water and help people be able to do that. They were burdened. They, they saw the condition and said, we can and we should do something about this. It became a moral issue for them. If we don't do this, then we're living in disobedience to the call that God's placing before us. Uh, I've uh, not yet had the meetings, but I saw some of the Facebook conversation and I've seen a number of post about it. Uh, many of our college students went this last week to Passion. Passion is a big nationwide conference uh, that they do. I think it's in that uh, December, January time of year when they're between class semesters. Uh, and one of the things that they've done the past two years is Passion is really trying to motivate and help make a greater awareness for slavery in the world today. I think Joe was telling us in staff meeting this morning that there are 27 million slaves in the world today. So there are more people in slavery today than at any point in the history of mankind. With all the history that we've been through, it's ridiculous the amount of people that are still in bondage and slavery, slavery and the sex trade industry. We would be appalled to know the stories and the details and the stats and the numbers. And they ha they've shared videos and testimonies and told stories and have, have uh, made our college students very aware 
of this plight around the world. And you know what's happened? Uh, you know, and, and I told them that part of theirs was in the, the movement to end slavery. So they came back and heard me talking about movement this week. And they're like, you stole from passion. I was like, wait a minute. I started before y'all went to passion. All right. So just, just for the record, they didn't hit corner the market on movement. Okay. But uh, came back and as we began talking about this, that they caught me and were like, we want to talk to you this week about our church and what we can do through this body and through the people who are here to build on this movement, this desire to end slavery in the world and to help people who are in slavery and in the sex trade industry. So there's this stirring within these individuals. There's this holy discontent with there's something wrong in the world. And and, and what they're saying to me now is we don't really know what, but we want to do something. And that's how God begins great moves and great works. And that's what happened with Nehemiah. So he had this stirring and he began to pray. And finally he decided, I'm going to go and ask the king's permission to go back and help the people out. Don't know that he totally had an idea necessarily of what he was going to do, but he just felt compelled that it was time for him to go back and help his people. So, chapter 1, verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And it's awesome what happens. We talk about prayer and, you know, uh, God... God hearing our prayer and then answering, he goes in and asks the king, basically, hey, can I go back? Is that going to be good? And, and uh, you know, the king sees him, says, why are you so downcast? And he tells him what's going on and basically asks permission to go back, which is, you know, that was the starting point. Hey, if you'll just let me go, I'll be good. That's where my burden is. Well, then the king kind of basically says, well, what else can I do? You know, I can, I can let you go, but is there anything else you need? And he was like, well, you know what else I need? I need papers for safe travel because some of these enemies who are surrounding are going to give me a hard time. You know, they're not going to want me to go back. So if I had some papers saying that I have your blessing and your approval to go, that'd be a big help. And so the king answers that prayer, lets him go, gives him the paper, and gives him supplies to go back and start the project. You talk about answers to prayer. Okay, I, I just want to go back. Lord, Lord, here's my prayer. Can I just go back and, and let me find favor with the king? So he goes in and he, just to go back, but then he gets a blank check to stake stuff with him. You know, all these other things that come. And you'll find later that the resources he sent, he got his letter. He got uh, provisions for rebuilding, but he also would get, because he was now an official and emissary of the king, he would get food provisions for he and his servants when he got back. That will become important later because there are food issues and people not being fed and taken care of. So Nehemiah then begins to share food from his table as the servant being provided for by the king. The king is helping the people with that very tangible daily need of food. So, I mean, all this comes under the banner of what we talk about this Sunday prayer praying submitting to God trusting him and letting God answer and God doing as scripture says Paul would write later in the New Testament immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine his ask can I go back oh yeah that and so much more. The power uh, and responsiveness of prayer. Also in Nehemiah 9, uh, you'll see another chapter where as they, they complete the walls and they're dedicating the temple or revival. It's a chapter on prayer. I'm not going to read that one to you, but look at Nehemiah 6. Chapter 15. I'm sorry. Nehemiah 6, verse 15. Yeah, whatever that little thing is there. The little number. So, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in, how many does that say? 52 days. 52 days. Now, 
you think of maybe a little picket fence in your backyard and go, okay, well, they got all these people to do. No, we're talking huge walls made of rocks and mixing sand and water to make mortar, to make it secure. I mean, this was a massive undertaking. We're, we're not talking here, you know, just a little, you know, time. people, you would walk on top of these walls. You would have equipment and animals up there to set up, you know, your artillery and stuff to guard against. These are big, big walls with people who are tired, who are weary, who are coming out of slavery, who've already been here, uh, you know, several decades and had, you know, had no success and hadn't been able to do it. Uh, tired, weary, not knowing what to do. So to knock this thing out in 52 days was incredible. You, know, you talk about a supernatural work of God. This whole movement thing that you're going to marshal these people and do it with the challenges they face. We'll, we'll hit on a couple of those here in a minute. Is significant. And they weren't the only ones who said, wow, look what God has done. Look, continue on uh, at the result. Verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that awesome? People said, man, look at what happened. That wasn't those people. That's their God, and he is someone to be reckoned with. We're not going to mess with them because we see that he is watching over and blessing his people, and so the, the opposition slowed way down. Didn't totally stop, but, uh, but slowed way down. Great, great, uh, great, great understanding here what happens. Uh, some themes in theology. Uh, we see God's giftedness in people uh, accomplishing his purposes in the world. Again, Nehemiah wasn't priest, wasn't Levite, temple personnel. He was a cupbearer to the king. But we see Nehemiah had great leadership and administrative gifts. When he came back, first thing he did when he got to the city of Jerusalem, he took a tour of the walls for he himself to see it, to know the condition of it. So he was taking inventory and then and what he did was he began to strategize and structure. Okay, you guys work over here. You guys work over here. You know how he coordinated their efforts? He had them working on the wall closest to their home. Now, why do you think that's important? Because you take care of what's close to you. Hey, I'm going to build this part strong because guess who, if they come through this part of the wall because it's weak, guess who the first people they're going to run into? My family, my wife, my kids. So, you know, just this structure, this organization, the, the thinking through, hey, let's do this. They were threatened by their enemies uh, on the outside as they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They said, we're going to go down and we are going to uh, make war with them. We're going to uh, uh, conquer them. And so Nehemiah, the people got afraid. They didn't want to work. They want to go to the walls. They never knew when the, the marauding forces were going to come in out of the hills. And so they, they basically stopped work, didn't know what to do. Nehemiah gathered them together and said, here's what we're going to do. Half of you are going to work and half of you are going to stand guard. And if you are attacked from, from the enemies coming in, you sound the alarm and we will all come to your aid. Even while you're working, keep your sword close to you. Be ready. Be prepared. So he did that, instilled confidence. Hey, we're not in this alone. We're going to help each other out. We have a plan. The people went back to work. Guess what their enemies did? Nothing. When they heard they had a plan, when they heard that this was taking place, they did nothing uh, against them. The enemies tried to lure him out of the city. said, hey, why don't you come out to the plane? Let's meet. Let's talk about a truce. You know, let, let's, uh, let's reason this out together. Nehemiah knew they were up to no good. So anybody remember what he told them? I preached through Nehemiah my first you know, couple of months. Does anybody remember what Nehemiah told them when they were trying to get him to leave the city? 
deeply impacted by my preaching, I can tell. It, uh, it, <laughs> it lasts such a long time. No, he, he told them, he said, I'm carrying on a great work and I cannot go down. Uh, and I remember talking with you guys about that. that you know, sometimes God, we, our priority in life is Satan tries to distract us. I love the quote sometime uh, one, uh, an individual said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And boy, I've seen that over and over again, that it's not necessarily big, earth-shattering, you know, life-threatening things. It's just day-in, day-out distractions that cause us to lose our focus and our passion and our zeal for serving God. And Nehemiah said, I'm carrying on a great work. I'm about God's business. I don't have time for this stuff. And so he didn't, you know, follow through with that. So you, you just these, these very powerful things with Nehemiah. So they rebuild the wall. After they rebuild the wall, they have a celebration. They reestablish the feast. Ezra reads the law. Uh, the people are, are moved. They're broken uh, by the law that's being read to them. And look over in Ezra, let's see, chapter 8. Again, this power, the centrality of God's word we see in Ezra carrying over to Nehemiah. Remember, they're working together. So it's not like Ezra ended and then Nehemiah started. They're they're working together. Nehemiah helps rebuild the wall. Then he says, hey, Ezra, we're going to worship. We're going to celebrate. What do you think Ezra's focus was on? Let's take them to scripture. So it's awesome. They read God's word to the people about being faithful to him and about following his covenant and how God, you know, his promises promised to bless, but he's promised to to bring, uh, you know, curses and punishment when they when they sin and there's disobedience so they read God's word and the people are broken they're convicted and they begin to weep and cry and go woe is us now we realize why we went into slavery because our forefathers and you know those before us disobeyed God and now we're here and we see that we're disobeying too they were broken by the very power of God's word and began weeping and mourning And remember the context of this. They just built the wall. It's exciting. It's wonderful. God's hand of blessing. They hear God's word and are broken to say, woe is us. We're a sinful people. And they have to remind them. Verse 10. uh, Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them yeah, that's a, a, just an awesome picture of the power of God's word to bring about conviction. But it's almost just kind of humorous. This to be a time of celebration, a great joy. And people hear God's word and are like, oh, we're doomed because we're never going to be able to, you know, to live up to the standard. Like, no, stop crying. Let, let's, let's celebrate today what God has done, uh, his faithfulness. So it, it's a great, great uh, testament to the power of God's word. And just this reminder of Ezra and Nehemiah bringing people back to it and the power of God's word to say this is who God has called you to be. This is what he has called you to do. Talked about the the opposition. God always rules and reigns power of prayer. Nehemiah sought to glorify God as people came to him with problems, with issues. He never took glory, praise for himself. He sought God to pray. Remember the food thing over here? When they came, there was a shortage of food. He said, here, take my food. The king gives me plenty. I I want to help in that. When he found out another threat to building the wall, remember the external and internal threats. The people came and said, Nehemiah, man, we're working on this wall. We really want to help. 
but we've got to go out and grow crops and you know do things in our business you know make metal or make wood or do whatever we do because we have debts to our fellow countrymen we owe them money and there is um what's that word called more money added to it Interest, yes, interest, usury being put on that. And so Nehemiah finds out that, now think about this, your countrymen are holding debts and they're charging you interest on it. Now that doesn't bother us at all. We live in a interest and in, in debt culture. You know, we're like, big deal, welcome to the world. But that was, you know, not kind. And God had specifically told his children to not do that as part of the law. Nehemiah heard about it. He gathered the people together and said, stop doing that. You know, let it go. We are, we're in this together. These are your fellow countrymen. Don't charge these things. Don't do this because we need to be focused on rebuilding the wall. Basically, the pep talk was if we don't build the wall, none of us are ever going to have anything. Okay, we're not secure. And so they, they forgave those debts. They did all that so the people could be free from that tension to come back. Nehemiah, really his heart was for God's people and the work that they were doing. So the reestablished worship, walls are up. They're secure. He goes back uh, to the king because the king had said, hey, I want you to come back when you get done building your walls there and stuff. So so he did come back, uh, and after a while, they slipped back into their sin pattern. One of the guys who was on the outside who gave them grief, they allowed him to come in and set up and live and work and, and operate out of the temple. Well, Nehemiah hears about this. He comes back, and he comes in. He's livid. So what he does, he comes in. He cleans house. He rebukes them. He disciplines them. He kicks them out of the temple, throws a bunch of them out of the city. Flip over to chapter 13. Uh, chapter 13, verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. They were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They were ignoring that. So he's already you know, cleaned them out and said, notice what we're doing. It says, And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And he wasn't talking about ordaining them to ministry either. All right. He wasn't saying, I'm going to come down and pray for you. <laughs> I'm going to come down and wear you out. You know, get away from here. We're not going to dishonor God and his word by allowing this to continue in the city uh, or outside the city. Uh, and so he had to come back. He did. He and Ezra both had to deal uh, with uh, intermarrying between pagan peoples and being led astray. Remember Solomon you know, had done that, so they had to deal with that issue. And so that reminds us of number six there, that sin and temptation never cease. Sin and temptation is always there. It's ever present, which as we close this historical part here, kind of ending, realizing they're still struggling with it. Where's the remedy? What's the plan? Who's the seed of woman? We had a whole lot of candidates. None of them really, you know, were able to ultimately and finally, you know, crush the head of Satan while he bruised their heel. It just sort of ends with this. We're still seeing sin and temptation. What's going to happen? The silence, and then Jesus will enter in here, and we're not going to follow that path. We're going to finish through our setup of the New Testament. Uh, but number seven is kind of the thought that I wanted to leave you with tonight from this, that God sends his servants to help people in their times of need. Nehemiah's burden was, my people, the people I'm a part of, they're hurting. There are needs. They're struggling. I'm not a priest. I'm not you know, a religious leader. I can organize. I can lead. I can administrate. I'm going to go back 
and take a look around and see if there's anything I can do. I trust God will show me. He'll tell me. So he went back. He made himself available. He wanted to help. And God used him in a great and a mighty and a powerful way. So a couple of months ago, I put this little thing out like what? Serve others like Jesus served me. You know, we see in Nehemiah, you remember we're talking about finding Jesus in the Old Testament and where he is looking forward. Uh, when we look at Nehemiah, his desire to go and help those in need. It was part of Jesus' ministry when he saw people hurting, needs, sick, whatever the need was, hungry. Jesus met those needs and he challenged his disciples. There was a need to wash the feet. He washed their feet and said, as I've set an example, you do this for one another. Follow my example of meeting needs uh, and serving and ministering two people. So that is the challenge that I kind of leave you with tonight uh, from Nehemiah as they're back and reestablished. And again, we're going to talk some more about that as we continue on in Marks of a Movement uh, for us as a body in that continuing to meet needs and serve individuals and uh, peoples in our community. All right. So two more books. Uh, Next week, I think we're scheduled to... I don't know if we're doing Esther and Job together or if I have broken up each of those. And then Psalms, we have a couple of weeks on that. That's a pretty big book in the Bible if you've ever read through. So uh, kind of picking up into that. Then we'll get into the prophets. And we're on target to should be finished by the summer. Which you go, the summer? You're talking about the summer. It's January, five five months away. But uh, we've got a lot of, a lot of ground to cover uh, in that window. But uh, I think we're going to be fine. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding, reestablished. God never gives up. You know, the remnant that was spoken of uh, in the first part of Nehemiah there, the remnant struggling back there. Uh, God always holds on to that remnant to himself. No matter what season, where we may be, there's always hope. Uh, God is always working the lives of his people. He has the power, even working through pagan kings, through pagan leaders, through whatever, any circumstances, God has the power to bring us back to himself, to restore us, and ultimately and finally, to bring glory and honor to himself. As with the Israelites, God's call to us, look to my word, seek after me, trust me, obey me, and I will take care of these things. My power, my strength, my might, not yours. Right, so there's our promise from Scripture. Well, let me pray for us, uh, and then Fred uh, has a prayer list if you want to go and spend some time with the prayer group tonight. I uh, had an awesome conversation yesterday. Again, I'm telling you, just God's. There's just a ton of stuff stirring. I could take the next, you know, 45 minutes and talk about just the last two days uh, of things in in the uh, just that God's beginning to bubble up. But uh, a couple of weeks may look at uh, some some additional things for some prayer things on Wednesday night with us and that group that's meeting and kind of build around that, but trying to wrap my brain around and get some, uh, get, get a little bit more direction and planning on that, but uh, cool things ahead. There's, there's just really, really neat things that God's uh, beginning to, to do and stir up within people. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths of these books. Thank you for leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah. And God, thank you that you are still raising people up like that today. That, Father, no matter what our giftedness, uh, no matter what our profession, Lord, no matter how uh, close we may feel to you or how far we may have feel that we have drifted, we know that you are available. That, God, you are uh, working your purposes and your plans. That, God, you desire to use us in a great 
and mighty way that ultimately and finally brings glory and honor to you. Uh, Lord, this week we have been praying for a movement. We pr- we're praying for you to stir something within us. And Lord, I think it's very appropriate that tonight we see Ezra and Nehemiah, two of your servants that you stirred within them, Father, uh, a call, a burden, a holy discontent. They stepped out in faith. They trusted you. They sought you. And God, you, you did great and mighty things, Father. You restored an entire nation, Father. You brought them back to you uh, through the call and through the move in the lives of these two men. Uh, Lord, we may not know what that movement is going to look like for us, for this body of believers, but Lord, we trust you. Uh, we claim your promises. We cling to your word. And I pray that the things that we see modeled in your scripture, that Father, they will get built into our lives as well. So guide us and direct us. Help us be faithful and obedient to you, to your word, and the truths that we see and the call that you place upon our lives. Father, we pray this in Christ's name.